0: Listener production. Punchy. Whacked. Power. Influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying.
1: Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> our guest is one of Australia's best known and I think most admired business women, Anne Sherry, the Executive Chair of Carnival Cruises. She's Admiral of the Fleet in more ways than one. She's absolutely outspoken and
0: always has been, even when it was um, a lot less fashionable to speak up for women in business and, you know, for feminist principles than it is now. She's always had an extraordinary amount of courage, I think, Anne.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of us have looked up to her because she set the
0: direction. And she puts her point of view with, humour and grace and warmth and strength. We're going to start back in the beginning. Oh, no. Yeah, 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 (laughs) when you had absolutely no idea you were going to end up running cruise ships. And if someone had said to you, um, you're going to run a cruise ship company, um, I suspect you would have said,
2: nah. Well, of course, women didn't see themselves doing anything, really. It was, uh, you looked out into the world and you saw men.
0: You didn't start out thinking, "I'm going to change the world, I'm going to be ambitious, I'm going to run a company.
2: Uh, there may have been a bit of that, um, but there wasn't a there was no clear path. you know, there was no obvious thing that I thought, yes, I'm going to do that, I'm going to run a cruise liner or I'm going to run a bank or I'm going to do any of those things. Because your uh, parents were both pharmacists. yeah, they, they? were. Yeah. they were. So I did start with the advantage that my Mother went to university when few women Mm. did. So she was one of the first women to go through Queensland University. Mm. And so education had value and she worked, which sort of set family apart as well. But it doesn't take you long to work out that there's stuff that's wrong and that needs changing. Mm. And so from quite an early age, I was... You know, I was feisty. Mm. I think was a description that was used.
0: <laughs> I get feisty. I yeah. get feisty. Quite yeah. fierce recently, yeah. which oh. I I'll own. I prefer. Yeah. F- I'm, I'm, I'm that. i
2: prefer yeah. fierce to feisty. Fierce,
0: something, yeah. something yeah. slightly. You're like a terrier dog or something.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, when when you're sort of eight or nine, feisty is a pretty good word it's though. True. It's like yeah, yeah. yeah. That's um, good. Better than naughty. Oh, cute. Although they said that as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they
2: sort of go hand in hand. Yeah. And, and you had two mm. sisters too, so it's a household of girls. Yeah. Yeah. Very was... girly household. And, uh, uh, you know, we grew up in a country town in Queensland, so uh, not environments known for their... Yeah, love of feisty women. <laughs> <laughs> Although yeah, they do produce... They produce, produce uh, They yeah, Produce, produce yeah. plenty. So it's yeah. an environment that produces plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, grew up in a town, you know, I went to school with Aboriginal kids. It was a very... It was Gimpy, wasn't it? Yeah, Gympie. It was a very yeah. integrated town in the sense that everybody... In small towns, everyone's there. Everyone's at the school. Everyone sort of, yeah. you know, it's a mosh pit of... Um, human activity and so you see the good, the bad and the ugly pretty early.
0: But your mother was an exception in that she'd gone to university and she also worked. Your father must have been an exception too because he was married to a woman who'd gone to university.
2: Yeah, and they were in business together as well. Mm. So, Mm. they were business partners, they were in the pharmacy together. Uh, We were all in the pharmacy together. (laughs) (laughs) So, you worked behind the counter. There were clearly no child labour laws when I was (laughs) growing up. (laughs) Everyone was there Mm. Uh, and Yeah, but that happened. You know, shopkeepers all, whether you were pharmacists or not, all shopkeepers had their kids after school in the shop. Uh, So we used to go to the shop after school before we went home and,
0: yeah. That's interesting though because I wonder if that does have an effect on young girls, um, even if they are helping out of the milk bar or whatever. Mm. Because My mother's father was a draper in uh, Manchester in the UK and she always worked in the shop Mm. and she grew up with a different view of, what women should and shouldn't do, yeah, and it, it, it was about. also
1: acceptable, wasn't it? So mm. we talk about working outside the home, but somehow the family business was that kind of yeah. slightly, slightly different,
2: wasn't it? Yeah, bridge yeah. into the working world. Yeah. And retail is a great space. I mean, I yeah. you know people sometimes say, where did you learn most? And uh, as I got older, of course, I worked during school holidays and all sorts of things. And we moved to Brisbane, so I worked in bigger shops. But um, retail is a great space because you are up close and personal with people all the time. Uh, again, you see the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, You learn a lot about what motivates people, what drives them to buy, when they buy, how they buy. Um, And I always had, you know, my specialty was the two days before Christmas, uh, men who'd had too much to drink who hadn't bought anything. I could sell them the most expensive pack of cosmetics and, you know, product. Ever, and that was my job. Actually, was to clear the shelves in the lead into Christmas, and Got a bit of a captive just, market. There, well, mm. you learn a lot about what, uh, mm. about guilt, actually. Yeah, yes, yeah. So I was going <laughs> to say yeah, that guilt. Juice, juice, but, yeah, that's
1: right, <laughs> And You went on to um, uh, to study radiography. Was it when you went yeah. to uni? Yeah. When I finished
2: school, I did radiography. Yeah, um, and I did it partly because I was interested in sort of science and maths. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was a very tech area. Yeah. Uh, I did it partly because uh, you w- uh, worked as you studied. So I had yeah. income, which gave me the opportunity to leave home. And uh, I did it also because everyone in my family was did health. Yeah. My parents were chemists, right. doctors, yeah. nurses, you know, grandparents were in health, it, like everyone seemed to be in health. And so it was what we knew. And mm. I, there's that weird thing as you end up doing what you know rather than Understanding what's available, um, and my mother also was quite keen that I married a doctor. So even though she was educated and uh, valued education, she always thought you needed um, you needed a profession to fall back on in case the marriage wasn't as good as it could be, or was right. you know he was a dud. Yeah. Um, but Maybe she, she knew a few doctors, <laughs> she thought uh, she thought I should at least have a crack at finding a doctor. Um, Did you? Is, oh no, not one that no, I liked. No, but no, I, no. Um, but it was it. In hindsight, I've, and I've said it to her a couple of times, why didn't you want me to be a doctor? And she said, well, you could have been a doctor, uh, but you didn't show any interest. And I thought, well, that might be fair actually because I was more interested in getting out of home than I was spending five years at home mm-hmm. studying. Studying, medicine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So exactly. uh, it's probably a fair reflection, although, you know, I don't recall much conversation about no. me being a doctor. No. And um, But anyway, you know, as it turned out, I didn't like working in the hospital system anyway, uh, I didn't find any doctors I thought were worth hanging on to, and um at the I satisfied her, and then I went on and did other things, yeah, mm. yeah.
0: so you said you wanted to get out of home mm. it was that because you were kind of eager to explore the world you 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 had a sort of impatience to get on and get on with it,
2: ah. Uh, I think, I mean, times are so different now. You Mm -hmm. know, I look at everyone with their 30, 40-year-old kids living with them, including me, uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and think, you know, all my peer group, we just could not wait to get out of home and probably because home was much more constrained than it is now. So it was a bit like getting out of the constraint of home, getting into your own social network, um, just doing your own thing. Mm -hmm. So an element of it was about getting out and exploring the world, an element was just rebellion uh, and an element of it was having your own your own environment that was different to the environment at home.
0: Mm. And then you went to the UK. Yeah.
2: So you did <laughs> yeah. kind of explore the world, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So I, I went back to Queensland University and did uh, ultimately economics and politics, which I love, completely different to anything I'd done before. Mm. And I, I sort of discovered the social sciences, the world of politics, Uh, all of that, which I was fascinated with, and then uh, did postgraduate industrial relations. Mm. And that's what took us to the UK. I got a scholarship to go to Warwick University, which was the hotbed of radical industrial relations at the time. And, you know, it was one of the, and by that stage, um, Michael and I were married, I had Nick, but we hadn't done the, you know, at 18, 19, I hadn't done the, I must go overseas for a year and then the get it out of my system. Yeah. I hadn't done any of that, yeah. so um, we actually decided that we'd do it together. And we we'd had we had a house, so we actually decided we'd cash out we'd cash out and take our cash and do it in a slightly more civilized way, <laughs> and um, and do some of the things we'd read about and were interested in as well. So, uh, yeah, we we did. We set off on our grand adventure. Um, bought a a uh, two CV, a chevaux Citroen from the Paris factory. Uh, and of course, nothing's online. Yeah. You set out into the world completely blind. It's an experience
0: um, no one will ever quite have again.
2: No isn't it? no, 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 because mm. you can't connect in, I mean, mm. now you can connect to everywhere there. Mm. You just had no idea we were reliant on. Yeah, you know, picture books that often were decades old. So and aerograms. Yeah, that's right. Writing <laughs> letters, <laughs> writing, writing letters. letters. Yeah. Mm, exactly. But yeah, no, it was a fantastic experience and such an eye opener about the world. So you can imagine, I'd done Gimpy in Brisbane by then. It was like, now let's go to, well, initially Warwickshire and then we ended up in London, which um, and you worked was in amazing. the prison system. Yeah. Well, we turned up at the university. This is this thing about not knowing where you're going. Mm. It's in the middle of nowhere, right? It's in the middle of the countryside, gorgeous little village quite nearby, which is where all the high-paid academics live. The students all lived in Coventry. And the housing was like something out of EastEnders. I mean, we looked at that and thought, oh, we just can't. It was cold. It was, there was stone. It was just, it was incomprehensible that we could move and live like that. Mm. It was bleak, yeah. yeah. And we were there in the summer initially. I mean, oh dear! And it's at its best, <laughs> yeah. So we just thought, no, 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 let's go to London. So we went um, back to London and uh, set up house in London. We were really lucky. We found a great place um, with a uh, an owner who loved Australians. <laughs> so and um, went to work. Mm. And I got a job working in the English prison system. And Michael got a job running the Polytechnic of North London, uh oh. student union. So between us, we were just in the almost underbelly is too strong a description, but sort of the underbelly of English culture because the student union was incredibly multicultural uh, and it wasn't quite an underbelly, but it's where it, it was very different to the very Anglo environment. We lived in Chiswick, so a mm. very Anglo environment around where we lived. His environment was incredibly multicultural and, of course, the prison system is overwhelmingly mm. West Indian, you know, second-generation mm, yeah. mm. um, kids because I worked in the Borstels primarily and uh, and the women's prison. So women who were there because um, largely because of drugs or violence, mm. domestic violence uh, and the kids who were there for largely petty crimes, but they came from um, first-generation English families, yeah.
0: What do you think is the major thing you learned about working in the prison system? With, I mean, because it's interesting you said women were there mainly for drugs and domestic violence, mm. yet they would have been the
2: victims of domestic violence. Yeah, they violence. were, and they'd fought back. That's why they yeah. were in prison. So it was, uh, I guess the things, I learned a lot. I came from a very neat life compared to the lives that I saw. Um, I learned, I mean, I learned a lot about uh, how women are treated in the, uh, you know, justice system. Uh, and I saw it firsthand and I saw the the pain of the double jeopardy, really, of fighting back against years of abuse and then finding yourself in prison and your kids being taken away, uh, which was patently unfair. <laughs> With the kids also, the unfairness of just being, many of them just trying to get along in an environment that shut them out. Uh, so we arrived in... Uh, London just after the Brixton riots, and the office I worked out of was at the Oval just around the corner from Brixton, and a lot of the kids I worked with came from those communities where they were in the hideous high-rise flats with no, a sense of hopelessness. But one of the great things is that they were all ambitious for better things, mm. and um, I mean, you know, the, the small things you learn, I, I was to teach them how to get jobs when they came out of jail, was one of my jobs. And so I'd say, okay, so we're going to get, we'll get the telephones, we're going to cold call an employer. And they'd all look at me completely blankly and it's like, what? And they said, well, firstly, Miss, you know, what are you talking about? I'd say, pick up the phone and they'd say, where's the phone? You know, I grew up in an environment, even in a country town where, with the number was, you know, 048, <laughs> everyone had a phone. Mm. These kids had no had never lived in a house with a phone.
0: So it was the red telephone box and push button. You go bell. down mm. the
2: box and you, yeah, and you take money down. And the idea of calling people just was, they they just didn't do it. They didn't know anyone that you called. And so that gives you quite a lot of insight into just, just I guess, the way people lived. But anyway, we got through all of that. And in the end, we started creating lots of little businesses. So quite mm. a few of the kids when they came out, uh, I'd say, what are the things you hate about where you live? Oh, it's always filthy. And who cleans it up? Well, someone's, there's a contract, someone's meant to do it, but they don't do it. All right, let's set up a business where you guys all do the cleaning, at least in the flats where you live. Oh, we couldn't do that. Oh, yes, we can. So in the end, there were quite, a, you know, I had a great time because I I worked with people who were really eager to do something different and where there was lots and lots of opportunity and where... To our theme of clout, where I had enough clout, mm. in fact, to go to the people who were managing the apartments where they lived, who had people not fulfilling contracts, and say to them, "We've actually we've got a business. Um, these guys deserve a chance. They live here, so they're committed to it. Uh, we want to we want to have a go at bidding for the contract and uh, and they let, and we did and we got it. So wow. you start to you start to sort of get a sense of. And I used to say to them, if you don't ask, you don't get. So yeah. let's let's go and ask uh, oh, no one will ever let us do it. No one will ever let us do this. It's like, no, no, come on, let's go and ask. So they were as shocked as I In fact of course I didn't know either. Um <laughs> mine was done on pure, um pure ass really.
0: Yeah. And I was gonna ask you, where did you learn, where did you get this idea that you could just go straight for the solution
2: and ignore all the barriers that people put in their own way often. I don't have the voice in my head Mm. that says you can't do this. Yes. Uh, My first question is what's the downside if I do it? And if I can't think of any downside, then you might as well have a crack. Okay. So I don't, and I, you know, I've got friends, we talk about it quite a lot. I do know lots of people whose first reaction is, oh my God, what will people think of me or uh, what will someone say? I don't, that actually is never my first thought. Sometimes maybe it should be, but it's not my (laughs) first thought ever. My first thought is always, what's the downside if I do it? And if I can't see any real downside, then I'll just go for it.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? I don't really have that voice in my head either that Mm. says, oh, people might not like it. Sometimes I think good. That'll make it more interesting. Mm. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, and no. I'm a bit of contrarian really? as well. Yeah. <laughs> sort of contrarian mm. in you
0: yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. I was
1: looking back at, at, at your um, mm. uh, CV, I suppose, mm. and, and and even though, I um, mean, you know, obviously I'm aware of it, but what an incredibly eclectic, um, you know, mm. a lot of experience you've had. And it's easy to forget that these days that is seen as an absolute positive and a strength when we were younger that was kind of, oh, no, you got your qualification and mm. then you stuck with it. And I remember going for a job interview once and I'd had about two jobs and they said, oh, you've moved around a lot. And that was not a good thing. Mm. So it's fascinating because you've gone from private sector, you know, to mm. well, public to private and so on. And that's, that's really interesting that you've been able to kind of do that and take those, I, I would imagine, some lessons that you've learned through all of those experiences.
2: Yeah. And opportunities have come to me as well. I think there's a piece about being open to opportunity, yeah. which I always have been. Yeah. And and also quite frankly, if I'm bored or I'm doing something that I've had enough of, I'm prepared to do just about anything else and I'm looking for it. So I think there's something about being open to it. If you feel as though you're on the path and you've got to stay on it to get anywhere. Then you're never open to stuff that comes. No, that's so very having
0: true. really yeah. fixed goals, which we're, women are often encouraged
2: yes, to have, yeah. Yeah. can have its downside because it sets you on a track. I don't know how anyone could career plan. The no. world is changing so quickly, yeah. uh, and everything around us is moving. To the idea that we're somehow set, and everything around us moves is just nonsense. You've mm. got to work out how you find where things go. And I sometimes describe, you know, some of my moves, I follow power as well because I think to get stuff done, you've got to see where the power shifts are. And, you know, I worked in the trade union movement for five years when the unions were around the table with the federal government, negotiating the accord, negotiating national superannuation. There was a lot of power in that environment then. The unions themselves were still stuck a bit in the past and some of their internal behaviours were terrible. But there was enough happening to find points of influence through that. And then when I jumped out of that into government, the power actually had shifted. And uh, when I first jumped into the Victorian government, it was a fresh government, first Labor government for 30-something years, wanted to do change. They were very ambitious for changing the world. And I thought, well, that's where I want to be.
0: And I'm really fascinated at your use of the word power. I actually ran a breakfast in Canberra just last week and the women on the panel all had clout, but they were very shy of the word power. And (laughs) it strikes me that there is still a real discomfort for a lot of women in saying, I want to have some power, as if there's something intrinsically wrong with that. I'd love your take on that.
2: Well, of course, I have—I clearly have the opposite view. I think you've oh, got yeah. to follow the power and you go with it and you find your way into it and then you use it. Uh, and there's an interesting thing of following stuff through. So when I was working in uh, the trade union movement, I was on the ACT Women's Committee when superannuation was first devised, national mm. super. When it was first devised, uh, part-time and casual workers were excluded. So most women didn't get access to the system when it was first put in place. I went to work in the Victorian government. I ran the employment um, division in the Department of Labor and saw firsthand the impact that it was already starting to have in terms of the structure of work. And there was some stuff I could do around childcare and a whole lot of other things while I was there, but I couldn't fix that. Then when I went to Canberra, into the Office of Status of Women, I went there with a very clear agenda in my head, one piece of which was to sort out women's access to superannuation and that happened in that time because I had incredible influence sitting in Prime Minister and Cabinet uh, looking at budget submissions and the debate was on again about the next iteration of superannuation. Very few people were arguing that every worker should be in Uh, and it was obvious that it was already starting to differentiate the retirement incomes of men and women, even after the first five or six years of compulsory superannuation. And because it was always going to ratchet up, it was going to get worse, not better. And so fixing that became really important. So I had a whole team of people who worked on that and we did get it fixed. Mm. So when you think about how you really make systemic change, you've got to go where power is. Otherwise, it's bloody hard to do. Well, power really only means the ability to change something. Yeah, yeah. It's where the action or the decision-making is happening about an issue at a point in time. And the reality is power does shift. It shifted and shifted to corporate Australia quite quickly as well. So I went with that move as well for exactly that reason because if you're following the idea, and, you know, in my case, I've always been passionate about a fairer deal for women, particularly Mm. women who are working. So I'd been able to play around in the union movement, getting better representation. I'd worked in government and opened up work-based childcare for the first time and put kindergartens and childcare centres together, like really pragmatic things that were getting in the way of women being able to work full-time, superannuation and a whole lot of other stuff in Canberra uh, and, you know, all sorts of things that I got to be involved in there. And then, of course, it was clear that... You can have the best policies in the world and you can have compulsory things like super, but the rest of it, you've got to be inside businesses to fix. And it was so interesting because I remember, well
1: remember, because of course I was writing the corporate woman column and I remember when you went into Westpac and Bob Joss, an American who came in and Mm. said, where are the women in this place? And that was such an important circuit breaker. Uh, And then you were there and you got... um, uh, paid maternity leave, which is what we called mm-hmm. it then. Interestingly, Fairfax already had it, but we were one of the very few companies that did. So I had three children when I, you know, in very short space of time. Oh, in the advertising yeah. industry,
0: they just fired me when I was Yeah, four, well, that's pregnant. right. That was their Yeah, solution. oh, and,
1: and don't worry, that was sort of, I was on the cusp of that as well, but, but I did manage to hang on. But it was unusual, and I do remember coming in and chatting to you about yeah. some of that, and you'd push that through. Um, and I, I remember thinking, "This is really important because this is this is where actually the business community can kind of push out in front." Yeah, it's an interesting. It's very pragmatic. I'm not. I'm
2: not eulogising them, but it was an interesting time, wasn't it? I was pragmatic as well. Yeah. I just wanted change. I didn't, yep. in a way, I was prepared to go where it was happening. But yeah, it did take. I guess it took the insight mm. of an American bank CEO, Mm. to go, like, where are the women? (laughs) Because American banks look so different. Mm. I mean, there's lots of things that were wrong with American banks, but they weren't so exclusive and clubby Mm. as the banks here. Uh, And you know, he did say, it was very specific as well. And, you know, people are still banging on about why hasn't there been change, enough change. Mm. Also, cause the most obvious thing isn't being done, which is you start at the top and then you say to the level below the people at the top, you must hire, you've got to change your teams. Because mm. unless you do that, it's fine to bring lots of women at the bottom, but if the top stays the same, nothing changes. And what that decision and the edict. So he issued an edict that the next senior hire in every division in Westpac had to be a woman. Now that's quotas by that's anyone's a quota. measure. Yep. Yeah. But they went down like a lead balloon. And of course everyone said there's no women, we've tried, you know, no search firms ever bring blah, 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 blah. And he said, I come out of banking. I know there are women that can do all of those jobs and so it stands. Every one of you has to hire a woman and everyone did. And so suddenly the whole senior management Mm. at Westpac changed. Mm. There were... Like six women came in at the same time. There was terrible stuff written about us. They, we were called Bob's girls. That's right. You know, the girls. I mean
1: it was so not by me. Demeaning. I <laughs> no. I remember
2: BRW wrote the mm. and they thought they were doing us a favour, I think. Mm. But and it was Helen Nugent, it was me, yeah. it was you know, it was a group yeah. of of women who had done lots of other things outside mm-hmm. the banking world. It was world. real talent. Mm. And it wasn't that hard to find. You know, there were women everywhere. So it was a really, it was a great group that came in. It fundamentally changed the culture forever uh, because it was suddenly from the top, the tone changed, the look and feel of the organisation changed. Of course, for the women in the organisation, it was like, oh, my God. It's possible, <laughs> isn't it? Interesting
1: though to think about that, and it was. It was such a breath of fresh air and incredibly important because l- I think it changed things. What
2: time are we? Like, 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 what Ninety-four. Ninety-four. 94.
1: Yeah, not that long ago. No, it's not that long ago. But what I was going to say is because I do distinctly remember coming in to interview you, Anne, and we were chatting about some of the other work you were doing, which was about um, videoing people in different kind of meeting setups yeah. to make it clear that if you had an all male meeting, the dynamics were very different to when you had a mixed meeting or an all female. Very interesting, penny-dropping moments. What I was going to ask you is, gee, I think we still need that though, don't yeah. we? And that's a bit of a shame because I think some of the work you were doing then, which is a long time ago now, no, no. I, I think is, is still 20 necessary. Ago. Yeah, yep, is still necessary. And and,
2: and BCG are about to produce a report on this, essentially saying mm. not enough has changed. No, mm-hmm. And, you know, the solutions are the same. And I okay. think there's there's been a very neat avoidance of the real solutions with mm-hmm. everyone... You know, unconscious bias suddenly became fashionable. Yeah. And everyone's talking about that, and we're getting training and endless mentoring. There's and, and lots of mentoring, mentoring and fixing of the women. You yeah. know, the women need to be more ambitious, less ambitious, more assertive, less ambitious. Mm. You know, more assertive, mm. less assertive, it's noisier, more, less lean, you know, so yeah. lean. It's out not. Out, yeah. yeah. So I think. <laughs> And, of course, all of that completely up, down. misses the issue, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. you've got to change the culture in organisations, you've got to be deliberate about the sort of organisation you're creating yep. and then you've got to put in place the things that really make that work yep. and there you've got to hire and you've got to be clear about who you're hiring and why, yep. you've got to be clear about what you're looking to get out of that because if everyone looks the same, there's no point in talking about selecting people on merit if they all look the same as the people who were there before. Merit doesn't look the same as the people who are there. It's just nonsense. Merit is gender blind. Mm -hmm. That's right. right. So if you're getting gendered outcomes, you're not getting merit. There's a, so all of that dynamic, people are sort of skirting around because mm. that's where the hard stuff is. They're dealing with the, as Martin Parkinson,
1: you know, former head of Treasury now pm and says, they're dealing with the symptoms and not the cause. Well, yeah. they're dealing yeah.
2: with the stuff that you can dance around totally. as well. Totally, yeah. And tick the uh, box. And I often say to people in businesses as well, we manage the numbers really carefully yeah. in 90% of what we do in business. The piece we never manage properly are the numbers around the people and we can see them. Yeah. Mm. You can see in every organisation where women disappear. You can see in every organisation the rates of hiring of men and women. You can All that stuff is in everyone's HR systems. You can see what people are being paid. You can actually see it. So what is the barrier?
0: After 20 years where we know what we should do, what the benefits would be and why we should do it, are we still not doing it?
2: Because it's not easy to give up power.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. Mm. So, so it's power's at the power. centre
2: of it mm. because, you know, there's an army of you know, men who thought they were, and, you know, when we came into Westpac, they had names for us. They had names I won't say here, but they, you know, but that we were called laterals, we were called, you know, there was all this language that was about blocking. It was actually about blocking people's career paths Mm. because for most, and, you know, it was largely meant for most of those men, they thought when I came in, I was in their job actually.
1: That was their job, not my job. And I'd
2: come in from the outside, I hadn't served my time, I didn't know the organisation, I hadn't started as a teller. Whatever it was that was their job mm. and that's what happens because the people you need to make and drive the change are people who in fact have to give up privilege and power yeah, yeah. and it's invisible to those who have it and that's the other really important well i think it's visible it. actually i yeah. think they i it's, think they're protecting it's a yeah. it's a it's a <laughs> deliberate ploy yeah. i i think yeah in many cases
0: I always think you follow the benefit. When you follow the benefit, follow oh, the money. And you can oh, the see money. exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah. why what Absolutely. happens happens. Absolutely. And people will, they may not face up to the fact that they're deliberately trying to, they will rationalise it by saying that person doesn't deserve it. Of course, I'm in favour of women getting promotion, but that woman there who's likely to well, get I a promotion. Think that, I think
1: that's the point of the quote, isn't it? There mm. was another one recently that said that um, people with privilege see equality as oppressive. Yeah which is, this is another take on that. Yeah. I agree. I think that there's just a very willful blindness about mm. that. I've got here because I am better. I am smarter and I am more capable. And mm. therefore everyone like me is as well. And therefore everyone mm. like me. <laughs> and yeah. I feel
0: comfortable with those people who are like me. Much yeah. more comfortable. Strangely. Much yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah, 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 we get through yeah, yeah. our meetings much quicker. Did mm. you find um, when you you know, were running the business, then you were running the cruise liner, that you could cut through all that because you were now the
2: CEO? Did that oh, give yeah. you... I mean, and I say this to young women as well, the best job to go for is the CEO (laughs) because then you can do anything. (laughs) It's your, I mean, in a sense, you're accountable, but it's the authority that you get as a CEO is fundamentally different than the authority you get at any other level of an organisation. Um, Mm. So, yeah, be the boss Mm. because that's when you can really make change. Talking about younger women, um, we were both
1: uh, on a podium recently and there were some women asking us questions about, you know, harassment, uh, bias, sexism, some of it quite overt. Mm. Um, But I did get a sense, uh, and this is a group guess they're in their 20s and 30s they had a really firm idea of what their rights were um, they were coming up against mm-hmm. some of these things which i i must say i suppose i'm clutching at straws here but i i think there is more awareness yes. of what oh, no, is much more, much more. Um, and Anne's advice was yeah. was terrific to some of them because i think one of them he just said well look if it gets to that point you probably need to look around and go mm-hmm. and um i think that's something that it was quite refreshing to hear
2: well i think there's a sort of pragmatism as yeah. well it's uh, unless you want to make it your life's work to take on every fight in the organisation you're in, which will kill you. Find a place that's better to work yeah. in. And and there have been a lot of courageous women who have spoken up, yeah. but they pay a very high personal price. Yeah. And it's hard to do from a position of powerlessness yeah. unless you've been really screwed and you want to take on the fight, which the women who speak up usually do. I've yes. been
0: racking my brains as you've been talking to think of a woman who did courageously take on one of those very difficult situations where they take someone to court or mm. they whistleblow on sexual harassment or whatever it is who has actually gone on then to have any kind no. of no. worthwhile. You con- actually, basically quite, quite the it. opposite. They opposite themselves yeah. Up. Yeah.
1: The David Jones incident. Oh yeah, um, the, yeah, the blokes all come back, Yeah, you know, yeah. almost
2: stunned damage. A young woman many, many years ago now who spoke up about the dealing room at um, BT at the mm-hmm. time, uh, who I still have stayed in contact with, but she could not get a job in no, Australia. Yeah. She's smart. She was a great dealer. She's very capable. As soon as she did that, she was dead here. And then when she first went, she went to Asia. When she first turned up in Asia, the word had already been mm. sent as well, and she ended up going into another industry. So it's a very it's a very punitive space. Yeah. So I think you know, and there are some individuals who want to take it on, and my hat off. I take my hat off to them. Uh, but for most i'd say it's a it's a dud culture it's probably a pretty dud workplace for you go and find somewhere better and mm. be the best you can be not sit around
0: yeah when i was fired when 4 months pregnant people said to me but you could take them to court and i said yes mm. and i'll never get a job in, in the australian again. advertising yeah, industry right. again yeah. and I want to. So that's I didn't have that sort of courage, I'm afraid. But younger yeah.
2: women do are much more aware of their rights and that's a good thing. Yeah. Because yeah. it does limit some of the worst excesses that used to happen in workplaces. Yeah. So, you know, a lot has changed. Those excesses have been limited. There's a There are much better processes for dealing with them inside companies, company so you don't have to end up in court yeah. unless it's an extreme case. So we're watching some of that play out. Those things are, are good things. There's better... Terms and conditions, there's more acceptance of maternity leave. Yes. There are rights about returning, yeah. which people know. Yeah. But it's still the subtle stuff. So culture, yeah. you know, I talk about culture a lot because I think culture ultimately are the subtle signals that happen inside mm. organisations that shut down opportunity and that yeah. close, off, uh, close off the next job or really your job has gone. So here's a sort of, you know, much lower level job that we've yeah. got or whatever it is. Mm. It's those things. And if you let that stuff go on inside your business, then you're complicit. You know, my view is you're complicit. Mm. Yep. Mm. So I think, again, back to my point about measurement, you can see those things if you look at the people numbers in businesses. Yeah. But, But no one's looking.
0: So we are all, to an extent, complicit because we're not looking. And you're very forthright and straightforward about this stuff. And, you know, both Catherine and I have spoken to plenty of women who are very senior in business and public service and various other things. And they're not in general particularly forthright. There's often a sense in which they dance around this stuff, will say things like they've never experienced any... And I just I, I just don't believe them. Officially, frankly, I sorry.
1: think, though I, I would make a... Yeah. I mean, because I know and but, have interviewed so many of them and I, I agree with you entirely, but I think they do feel constrained to speak up publicly and I do think that that's mm. a real pity. But when you're the young women or, yes, or even older yes. women in
0: the audience, you're... It, That kind of story just makes you feel awful because they never had any problems. So what is it about me that's created all these Mm. problems for me? But, Anne, how, why? Why are you so able to just tell it
2: like it is? Well, I figure life's short. And quite frankly, if we all spend our time dancing around issues and trying to fluff over it and dress it up and put lipstick on the pig or whatever you want to call it, then nothing ever changes. I feel strongly about stuff I see that's wrong. And if I can change it, I will. If, I, if that means talking about it, I'll talk about it. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that anybody ever really did better in their organisation for not saying the truth. <laughs> I just don't. I know lots of people are careful and guarded about it and feel like they've got to protect their roles or their organisations or whatever it is. And I have got myself into trouble being so forthright, including when I was a public servant. Mm. Uh, in fact, I was I remember waking up one morning and I was a headline in the Daily Telly. <laughs> I did have a moment that mm-hmm. day thinking, oh, this is not going to be a good day. No. <laughs> in uh, fact, I was a front page headline. Oh, um, wow. this is not going to be a good day. And I got the call from uh, the Prime Minister about a second after I opened the page. Oh, I, <laughs> <wish>. <laughs> I bet. But you know, Again, what you learn out of that is what's the worst thing that can happen? Someone Mm. shouted at me, yep, they were pissed off, yep. Uh, Did anything else happen? Did I lose my job? Actually, no, I didn't. Did the issue get a much better airing? Yeah, it did. Mm. And did some of that get fixed because I said it? Actually, yeah, it did. So I just think you've got a way up. You know, it's like, again, that one I didn't expect to be a headline in a paper, because it was meant to be a closed group of people Mm. I was speaking to that day. But the story goes, it was, uh, in fact, it was back in my old world of childcare. I was the head of the Office of Status of Women. We had all the childcare um, establishment of Australia in a room. We were talking about the future of childcare. And at that stage, there was this debate about public-private. should all be public. They shouldn't be private. They were terrible. Only public was good. But, of course, there was no money. And so I said to this group... We will not have sufficient childcare unless we open the system up to the private providers because there's not enough money in the public purses to provide enough childcare for the working women of Australia. Yep. Which was true. And what yeah. did the headline say? The headline said, Sherry declares childcare Bankrupt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Yay. One
2: of the photo of me. One of the front page subs had fun oh my with God. that. It yeah. was one of those, I oh. did. I mean, it's one of those moments. It doesn't happen to me that often, but I have had it a few times So I've looked at it and I've just thought, oh, oh and your I, feel yeah. I feel sick. I feel sick. This is going to be such oh. a bad day. Oh, oh, yeah. wow. I, I yep.
0: got one not that long. A few years ago when I was on Q&A and the headline in the News Limited the next day said, housewives, Caro says, housewives are prostitutes. Yeah. Which I didn't say. But anyway, let's not worry about yeah. that. But there, that was fun
2: But too. again, you learn, you know, what's mm. the worst thing that can happen, which is oh. the voice I've always got. Yeah. I got a bollocking. It I didn't wasn't, get It bollocking. wasn't the way I wanted it out there, but actually the fact that it was out there was not a bad thing.
0: Yeah. No, it actually, mm-hmm. it, it made some change. Yeah. Yeah. I often think people... Anticipate the yeah. consequences of actions too much. I would say to people, just don't anticipate. Do what you think is right, say what you think is true, yeah. and don't worry about what might happen because mm. if it happens, you'll
2: deal with it. But you know what? And I for- said 100,000 worse things than that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Any one of them was it's a, a slow, headline. A slow <laughs> so news day, maybe. It's who knows, knows, so like that, you don't yeah. expect yeah. the to you to. Yeah,
1: true. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You've got tickets on yourself. What makes you think you're entitled to mm. that? I think it's a very get back in your box kind of a voice. For Whereas one,
2: my voice says, well, if you don't do it, who's going to do it? Mm. And why should you hand it over to somebody else to do <laughs> when you When you're there, you do it. Like <laughs> it's, it's, it's in front of you. You do it. It's your job to do it. Mm. So I think there's a, there is a piece of you've got to shut down the self-doubt. Mm. Um, but the other piece also is, you know, to get an affirming voice. Like if you've got an opportunity, why wouldn't you grab it? Mm. Like what an amazing thing to be able to do. If If you can be in a first grade team or if you've got a great job that's on offer or quite frankly, you get the opportunity to change something, do it. Because if you don't do it, what happens? It just sits around there forever. And there's not enough of that. So that's one piece of it. I think the second is that, Women are quite risk averse because we feel like we're managing not just us but our families. Our, you know, what what do to my kids? What about my husband's job? And of course, I've um, having told the story a few times before. Um, I did uh, in accepting the job to run Westpac in New Zealand. My husband at the time was the head of communications for Cricket Australia, uh, which is called, of course, the boys' own job, and he loved it. So I mean it was an amazing job. Uh, so to go to New Zealand with me required him to give up that job, and we talked about it as we always did. And I said, you know, what an opp- great opportunity! Blah blah blah. It's so exciting. There's never been a woman run a bank, and blah blah blah. You know, let's. And so mm. he said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Gave up the job. Now his friends rang me <laughs> and said, how could you? Oh. How could you? Yeah. And I think so. There is a piece, and of course, I wasn't thinking like that at all. No, I'd I'd shut that one down ages ago because he'd given it up. I asked him. It was his it was his issue to manage, not mine. But then lots of people thought it was my issue to manage. Yes. So I didn't think it was my job to manage what he wanted. We had to talk about it, as you do in relationships, and yeah. we had to work out what was the way forward that was right for both of us. Yeah. But it, I wasn't carrying his risk. Mm-hmm. I was carrying my own risk. Yep. And he carried his risk.
0: Do you think that part of the problem for a lot of women is we're still not quite sure of where we stop and other people start? And so we spend a lot of time caretaking others and protecting others without actually doing that thing where you've just described where you have a boundary. You know Hmm. what your responsibilities are and you know what your husband's responsibilities are. And in a way, you're two adults in a relationship rather than a mummy looking after some sort of superannuated child.
2: But the reality of that is you can't manage everyone else's life. You just can't. You make yourself miserable trying. if you think you're doing it, then then it's a sort of, I don't know, saint complex or something. And it's thankless Mm. too,
1: isn't it? It And it's boring. Yeah.
2: Well, well, and also pragmatically you can't do it. Mm, You actually cannot run other people's lives. Mm. So you've got to make sure that whatever you're doing, you give people a fair opportunity to speak and express a yeah. view or whatever, it, however you run your world and your relationships. But I don't run everyone else's life. So I'm very clear that I run my own. You know, my I talk to my fa- extended family a lot. You know, they often say, oh, but I thought this is like, why would you? Why would you worry about that? You actually have no control over it. You can't make it happen. So why are you fretting about it? And you can hear them go, Hmm, oh. <laughs> that's actually quite a good point. Good point. <laughs> because I think you end up in that zone of constantly feeling like you've got to fret about everyone else. What if that doesn't work? And what if my you know my mother's got a broken leg yeah. at the moment? What if my mother's leg doesn't heal? It's like, well, I can't make that happen. And if a leg doesn't heal, we'll, do, we'll work it out. We'll get somebody to look after, you know, we'll work it out. Yeah. She can come and live with me. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. But we'll work it out. But we can't fret about it. Don't anticipate. Don't anticipate mm-hmm. the worst outcome yeah, so. because, in fact, It'll probably get fixed.
0: It will probably heal. <laughs> well, Anne, I will say this: you have been an absolute pleasure. And can I just, you know, on a personal level, thank you so much for being so
1: bloody forthright. <laughs> thank How you. grand that is! Thank you. I think we need more Anne Sherrys. We do.
0: Women with clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. Producer,
1: Lip Proud. Theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.